Welcome to the Alkaline Unplugged podcast. I'm Erin Parazuski, a functional fitness expert and holistic health coach. I am the founder and CEO of Alkaline, a health and wellness company that operates boutique fitness franchises across the U.S. I live in Menlo Park, California with my husband and two young daughters. I am joined by my podcast partner, Kathy Purnell, a master instructor at Alkaline and a former special education teacher. She has three grown daughters and lives in Los Altos with her husband, Jeff. Together, we bring you Alkaline Unplugged, a collection of conversations on a whole host of topics, from experts in the health and wellness field to the real, raw, and human stories of people like you and me. We look forward to bringing you content that will nourish your mind, body, and soul. We thank you for tuning in and look forward to your comments and feedback. If you like what you hear, we'd appreciate a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. As a disclaimer, neither Kathy nor I are licensed medical professionals. The materials and content in this podcast are intended to be general information and are not to be considered a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Welcome to Alkaline Unplugged, Episode 8. Today, we are so excited to be joined by Vivian Tofik, a board-certified anesthesiologist and pain medicine physician who specializes in the treatment of complex chronic pain disorders, including chronic post-operative pain, complex regional pain syndrome, and peripheral nerve injury. She obtained her MD and PhD in neuroscience with a focus on basic pain mechanisms at Dartmouth Medical School before joining the Stanford Department of Anesthesiology, Perioperative Pain, and Pain Medicine. After completion of her subspecialty fellowship training in pain medicine, Dr. Tofik joined the faculty at Stanford and continues to research the immune contribution to persistent pain while treating patients suffering from chronic pain. Welcome, Vivian. Thank you. Hey, tell us a little bit about yourself and what made you choose this particular specialty. Sure. So I was actually drawn to uh, pain management um, because of an interest years ago in uh, addiction and drug action. So I was very interested in, uh, at the time, the rave culture that was happening in the 1990s in in the big city of Montreal where I grew up. And I was sort of the nerd who would run to the books and try to figure out what all these drugs were doing to the brain, including things like ecstasy and methamphetamine that were sort of very popular at that time. Um, So as a nerd, I obviously started researching those things and got interested in pursuing lab research to understand why people would take those drugs and what those drugs did to the brain. Doing that work, I realized that there was a lot of overlap between addiction and pain and ultimately decided to pursue a PhD as part of an MD-PhD program specifically focused on pain and understanding the underlying mechanisms of pain and how people end up with chronic pain. I also at the same time pursued a medical degree so that I could then subspecialize in anesthesiology, which is the specialty that most pain physicians uh, are board certified in. And so ultimately, that allowed me to treat patients with chronic pain while at the same time researching the underlying mechanisms of pain to better understand it. Wow, that's intense. I don't even know where to launch in on that. It's so interesting. It's so complex in terms of when I think of pain management, the traditional, um, at least thought that I think most of us go to is pain management. You take an Advil or you take a medication in order to deal with the pain. And it sounds to me like there's so many other options and ways that you've 
seen to treat pain. Yeah, I mean, I think that the important point with pain is that, you know, we come to the doctor and say that we have pain and you say it or you say it or your brother or your mother, somebody says pain, but actually the mechanisms that underlie that pain may be very different. They may be different if you're young, if you're old, if you're female, if you're male. We don't really understand that much about what makes pain unique in each person. And so in some ways we do sort of treat it with an Advil because, or ibuprofen or whatever it is, um, because that's what we sort of know. Um, What we're trying to do is understand more about the specific uniqueness of each person's pain. And that way we can target treatments to that underlying mechanism and not just say, okay, you have pain, you get this, but actually say you have pain because of X and therefore we can treat it with this specific medication, uh, physical therapy, um, psychology, all these different other uh, modalities that we have access to. Yeah, because you read in the news too about the over over um, prescription of medication and the abuse then, and it sounds like you had some... Um, interest in discovering the the um, abuse of medication or the um, just how that played out the misuse yeah yeah and so now now it's very obvious to everyone that there are mechanisms that connect addiction to pain because now everybody talks about the opioid epidemic yes uh and so because of that i think there's been a lot of attention put on the use of opioids for pain management Uh, And we know that those medicines work and there are situations where they are appropriate, but they're not the only thing that can help for pain. And uh, we certainly, at least in our, in my practice and in our our clinic, we try to use a much more multidisciplinary approach to pain that includes many different kinds of medications, not just opioids, but other ones, um, physical therapy. And so we can talk about obviously a part of that and, and alkaline being something I think very strongly is important that kind of work core strengthening things like that um, for um, physical therapy as a modality for treatment of pain Um, some pain psychology looking at how stress can worsen pain and pain can worsen stress it's extremely important to sort of uh, make a dent into that loop and sort of break up that kind of um, interaction Um, and then we also do interventional treatments where sometimes you know certain injections or procedures can help with people's pain. So sort of taking something from each of those four categories, I think tends to be the most helpful in the treatment of pain and sort of honing in on just opioid use was I think what people did for a long time, because it's kind of easy. You just write a prescription, people take it, they feel good. But then the long-term consequences as we've now seen are quite extreme and problematic. What percentage of the population would you say deal deals with chronic pain? So we define we define chronic pain as pain lasting more than three to six months, depending on where you look at the data. Um, but it's actually been defined as a, occurring in one in three Americans. So that's a huge number of people. And that includes all comers. So that could be chronic low back pain, fibromyalgia, which is a whole body pain syndrome, migraine, the number of women affected by non-migraine is astronomical. That's a chronic pain syndrome. Um, So we're really talking about 100 million Americans that are affected on a daily basis by chronic persistent pain. It's a huge number of people. How does that differ from, you mentioned Americans, is that just the data you have? Does that, does it change if you look if you compare it to other countries, do we yeah, have so more the, of we more don't, pain? I don't think we have more pain, but the best data came that the Institute of Medicine, which is now called the National Academy of Medicine, did a big study about um, eight years ago now where they 
literally went and interviewed people and they tried to look at the prevalence of pain and not just the prevalence, but also the economic costs. And it, because it was an American institution, they focused on the U.S. And so they were the ones who found this number of one in three Americans. And they actually paid at a cost of like over, uh, I think it's like $500 billion or some huge amount of money because it's not just the cost of, you know, somebody going to the doctor, but also when you think about people with chronic pain, you know, they lose a lot of productivity at work. They have missed days. They have disability claims. So the amount of productivity lost um, when people have pain conditions is actually much higher than other types of uh, medical problems. But yeah, so to answer your question directly, the, the most updated information was from that recent um, news, basically that Institute of Medicine report. I think it's interesting when you talk about, you know, looking at chronic pain and not there not being a one size fits all or here's a prescription and it's going to take away the pain. There's so it's a multidisciplinary sort of approach to dealing with pain. Um, at Alkaline, we talk a lot about listening to your body when it's whispering versus when it's yelling and the benefits of connecting your mind to your body and strengthening in a way so that you can eliminate wear and tear on joints and, um, and all those kinds of things. And I know you've taken classes at Alkaline as well. Tell us what you, how do you think the work that we do at Alkaline can impact somebody's pain, pain management? So I, I talk a lot about sort of, first of all, weight, weight gain and weight loss. And I think for a lot of people, it's hard to imagine. But when you think about the skeleton as being the same skeleton, whether you hang on it 150 pounds or 300 pounds, I often talk to patients about how that's a large stress on those bones. So if you're talking about especially chronic low back pain, weight loss is extremely important for improving pain, improving low back pain. That said, you know, just weight loss alone is probably not good enough because we know that even at a lower weight, some people may have chronic back pain. So to me, what resonated with me with Alkaline was sort of the focus on core strengthening, the focus on function, on posture, on all these things that really help the day-to-day function and so that you can still go to work. And, you know, it's almost like you're exercising while you're at work because you're maintaining all this alignment that Alkaline really likes to, you know, focus on when you're in the class. And so to me, that functional component is really, really important. And so I talk to my patients about core strengthening all the time. I'm like, you have to, you know, strengthen the front in order to strengthen the back. And so in order for that, for the bones of your back to have support, you need the muscles to be working for your back because you can't just expect your spine and the, the bones of the spine to do all the work. And so to me, the, 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 that sort of focus on function at Alkaline is why I liked it so much when I started going there. And I so appreciate just your holistic approach to wellness in general, but, you know, also pain management. That's, that's awesome. How many of your um, patients that you see exercise? Because the reason um, we started decided to do this podcast is because you were in class and a client had uh, something going on. And I said, what's going on with your shoulder? And she said, I have frozen shoulder. And I kind of, as I was teaching, I was get, gathering more information about what she was, how she was uh, advised to, you know, treat it. And she said, um, they told me to do range of motion stuff. She was doing some arm movements without the weights. And she said, they told me to, to do the mobility work, which we believe is the foundation of everything, being able to move. That's the ultimate goal, right? Like let's 
it doesn't matter if you have the, the strongest biceps, if you can't actually use them or move around, it's not um, that functional. And she said, they told me to stop moving before the point of pain. And she is, a, a her background is a, an athlete. And she said, I was always told, you know, to push through the pain. No pain, no gain. Yeah. So that's exactly what I said. No pain, no gain. But that's not what we believe in around here. And that's <laughs> then you came up to after class and we were talking about and you see a complete, um, I would imagine, um, opposite side of the spectrum where in the fitness field, I think most of the most workouts and most the whole industry is about uh, more is more and push through the pain and, you know, stronger, faster, better. There's all this, you know, association and ego um, tied to and a belief system that pushes people to that. And I used to be one of those people I would push through anything. I mean, whether that was, you know, still doing my marathon training when I was like on the brink of pneumonia or, you know, I never took a sick day from work. Like I pushed through whatever I needed to. Um, whereas you were saying with your chronic pain patients, they're afraid to, they can be afraid to do anything. So how do you strike a balance between, you know, it sounds like that's a little bit of the, um, the, mind over matter, maybe, <laughs> instead of no pain, no gain. What's your philosophy on that? So I think this brings up a really important point, which is the difference between acute pain and chronic pain. And it's it's sort of complicated because, you know, from very, very young, you learn that if you have pain, you should, you know, back off. So you touch a hot stove, you burn your hand, you pull it away. So pain is a warning sign. You need pain in order to survive very clearly. There have been many descriptions in the literature of people who are born with um, insensitivity to pain, and those people die young because they don't know, they don't learn to move their hand away from the fire. You know, they do crazy things like, you know, swallow knives because they can't feel that there's pain associated with it. So obviously pain is important um, in terms of being a warning signal and a protective signal for us, but there's some issue where that acute pain can then become chronic. And I sort of loosely define that as like pain that lasts more than three months. But there's something that happens in the nervous system, meaning in the brain and the spinal cord, where suddenly there's no fire and yet you're still sensing pain. So for example, the condition that I'm most uh, expert in is something called complex regional pain syndrome or CRPS. And this is something that can occur after an injury, something simple like you break your wrist. And then it doesn't heal for some reason. Instead of healing in the normal few months, you get persistent, red hot, swollen hand. And no matter what, even though there's nothing else going on, the fracture is healed, the patient will still have a red hot, swollen hand. Eventually, that red hot swelling goes away, but they still have pain. Sometimes you can see something, sometimes you can't. So, in that case, if you don't move the hand, even though the hand hurts, if you don't move the hand, you lose the function. And the brain starts to ignore the hand because in a way the brain wants to wall off something that's not being useful. And so you start to ignore the hand and you start to do everything with your other hand, maybe even switch sidedness. You hurt your right hand. So you suddenly do everything with your left and you kind of ignore the right hand. So in that case, the pain that might be associated with moving the right hand is no longer a warning. There's no physiologic reason why you need to have pain in that hand. It's not telling you that there's something bad. It's not telling you there's a fire or something you need to pull away from. Your brain has somehow been almost hijacked by this system of this chronic pain. 
And so in those cases, if you continuously avoid movement, then you can't really get better. And so that's where it's subtle. The no pain, no gain is like for a patient with chronic pain, a lot of times what we're asking them to do when we start doing physical therapy or, or hand therapy or whatever it may be, it's going to be painful because we need to sort of get over that threshold of what we call kinesiophobia, which is essentially fear of moving um, and get them to re-acknowledge what normal function is and what normal touch feels like. So to the point where we literally have patients touch their own hand, even doing something um, pleasurable, like, you know, stroking your cat is something that I encourage my patients with that condition to do because they need their brain to remember what normal touch feels like so that then they can know that that's actually not painful because you need to reteach your nervous system what is painful and what is not. And so just avoiding movement that's painful in those cases is not actually helpful. That said, you know, there's always the fear and I always get this question of like, well, how do I know that I'm not harming myself? Because you're taught that, right? Like there must be something wrong and that's why I'm getting pain. And it's, it's hard. It's hard to know. But what we do is we try to do all the proper evaluation. So we make sure the fracture is healed. We make sure that there are no slip discs in the back. We make sure that there is no tumor that's pressing on something. So that when we give the recommendation, you need to start moving, move through the pain, that we're not doing that, you know, without thinking or without knowing that they may, you know, there may not actually be harm to come from that. Um, but we always say it's stepwise. It's not like you're going to go from laying in bed for 20 hours to suddenly running a marathon tomorrow. But I usually recommend to patients, try going for a walk. Go get your mail tomorrow. That's it. Just go get your mail. And then if you can do that, rest. So it's really about sort of keeping a, a little bit more activity every day and feeling like you have an overall upward trajectory as opposed to, you know, feeling like all of a sudden you're, you know, doing something really extreme. There are going to be good days and bad days, but overall feeling like you're making slow and steady progress towards being more functional and making more movements. Again, back to alkaline, you know, it's not like you need to show up the first day and be able to do everything. I can't do everything. And I've been there more than once. Um, but <laughs> so, you know, it's not about being able to do everything, but it's about feeling like, you know, you can do a little bit more every time uh, and not not doing it to the point of being set back for a week. That doesn't help anybody. But doing a little more so that you are starting to incrementally move towards a goal of function. I think that's that's important. And that really brings up the, you know, chronic pain. The pain is no longer a warning signal. There is no ongoing injury that we can detect. Uh, so you do need to move through that pain in some sort of, you know, small way. So interesting how the brain is so connected and in many ways trying to protect us, right? In terms of like you use the example of the hand, nothing being wrong with the hand any longer, but almost that fear and it creates that disconnect between, you know, what your mind needs to tell that limb to do. That's fascinating. What is the root cause of most chronic pain? It's so hard to know. So, I mean, at, at, a, at a really molecular level, it's neurons, so nerve cells that are sending signals when they're not supposed to be. And that that's really the neural circuitry that underlies chronic pain. So for some reason, even though there's no fire, the neuron that comes from my finger that goes up through my arm, up to my neck, up to my brain is saying, there's something, this is hurting. And I'm like, there's nothing there. It shouldn't be hurting, but yet it's hurting. So it is that increased signal activity 
almost like a seizure of the of the nervous system of the of the hand or the arm neurons um, that causes chronic pain. But that said, there's so much more that goes into it. We know that there can be pain that's actually generated in the spinal cord or brain, like after a stroke, people can have severe pain. There's pain that's generated in the muscles, like in fibromyalgia. There's uh, the cells that I'm particularly interested in in the spinal cord and brain are called glial cells. They're the, the glue that's supposed to hold together the nervous, the neurons, the nervous system, brain cells, and, and spinal cord cells. And we know that they can act as like little spewers of inflammation and they can cause low level neuroinflammation in the brain and spinal cord. So there's all these different things that kind of connect together. And then, as we said, there's all the other human overlay of pain, which is you don't sleep your pain gets worse. You have pain, your sleep is worse. Yeah. So all of these sort of things that can happen, you get stressed out, your pain is worse. Your, your pain, you have bad pain, your stress is worse. All of these things that kind of become what we call the pain experience, because pain is actually defined officially as an experience, because we know it incorporates all these other facets, prior experience with pain, prior history of trauma, you know, where it happened. Is it something that happened at work? Are you undergoing litigation associated with your pain? There's all these things that play into what ultimately we call pain. Um, and that's why it's, you know, interesting. And I will, you know, endlessly be fascinated by it, but it also makes it extremely difficult to treat. And we need people like you because I can think of, I have a friend who um, had chronic pain. She was eventually diagnosed with fibromyalgia, but she went to the doctor often and they were like, it's in your head. <laughs> right? That drives me crazy. I know. And so if it's something, if it's not something you can see physically, um, I think it's hard for some physicians probably to relate to that and to know what to do. And I so appreciate hearing that it sounds like you take a very holistic approach and you're not just looking for the things on the surface. You're going to dig deep and try and figure out and help these people. Yeah. I know. mean, the whole, it's all in your head thing is so frustrating because you know, everybody is always trying to find, like, can we objectively measure pain? Like, is there going to be a test that we can do that says whether or not someone's in pain? And it's like, well, why can't we just ask? Or even the <laughs> scale when you go to the hospital, on a scale of one to 10, what is your pain? That's, even as a patient, you know, I remember in, in labor, on a scale of one to 10, I'm like, this is something I've never experienced before. Exactly. So I'd say about a 14. I don't know. Right, you know exactly. It's so hard to put a number on it. And it's based on your experience. I asked Ava that. Oh, recently she got her expanders in and she was in pain. And I said, scale of one to 10. And she said... I don't know. I've never, I mean, she basically has been lucky enough. She was like, well, I've never had stitches. I've never had a fall. But if you, the more pain you have, the more relative it becomes. So what today might feel like a 10 to her, if she had that kind of thing going on every day, it might be a two, right? It's just how you, you get used to it in some ways or, I don't know. Now you're currently doing, tell us about the research that you are currently doing. Sure. So we actually, so, so the way I split my time is essentially Mondays I'm in clinic and I see patients with chronic post-surgical pain, complex regional pain syndrome, peripheral injury. I mean, I can sort of see everything, but those are my real specialty areas. And then the rest of the week, um, I have a lab where we're interested in understanding the mechanisms of the acute to chronic pain transition. And we have a mouse model. So we use mice for our research because there's a lot of 
things you can do in mice that you can't necessarily do in humans, like um, look at genes that underlie different pain uh, subtypes. Um, you can give medications and see how the pain changes in the mice. And so you basically do these manipulations with the goal of eventually being able to translate them to humans. And so we have a mouse model of complex regional pain syndrome that we use uh, in order to better understand how those cells that I mentioned before, the glial cells, so these like inflammatory type cells in the nervous system can affect this acute to chronic pain transition. The hope is that if you can block pain before it comes chronic, you have a better chance of treating it. Uh, and so that's really what we're mostly focused on in, in the lab and doing the research. I guess I, I count myself lucky in the fact that I'm 56 and I don't have chronic pain. And I attribute a lot of that to, you know, just eating an anti-inflammatory diet as much as I can and doing alkaline and, and taking care of myself and backing off when, when my body is telling me that something doesn't feel right, stop doing it. You know, What is the transition like for, you keep referring to acute to chronic I assume everything starts as acute and you don't know if it's going to be acute or if it's going to become chronic. Um, what are the biggest causes of that you see of the, you know, the acute, I'm, I'm really interested in the root cause. I'm a Six Sigma consultant. So I always go back to like <laughs> the root cause and what, um, what, what are the biggest, you know, um, causes of the, the chronic pain? So, yeah, so to answer the first part of the question, most pain starts, when when most pain starts, you assume it's going to go away, right? So that's why, you know, you stub your toe, it's like it hurts, it's going to get better, right? You don't really care about it. But then like two weeks later, you're like, oh, my toe still hurts. Oh, that's weird. A month later, my toe still hurts. So, yeah, so most pain we think of starts as acute, but then at some point it becomes chronic. So why does it become chronic? I mean, there's some predictors. So for example, women are just generally more susceptible to all forms of chronic pain. Um, migraine is a good example. CRPS that I treat has three times more women than men that are affected by the disease. So women who are exposed to an acute pain um, are more likely to, to suffer from chronic pain. Um, and then there's other things. So there's a lot of other factors you can look at in terms of genetics underlying different people are more susceptible to chronic pain. Um, and, um, uh, certain surgeries, like for example, um, C-section has the lowest rate of chronic pain, um, post-mastectomy, there's a very high rate of chronic pain. About 30% of women go on to have chronic post-mastectomy pain. Uh, so there's, you know, and that's two surgeries only done in women, you know, so C-sections have low, low risk, but mastectomies have high risk. And there's a lot of things about where the incisions are and where the nerves are, you know, re with relation to the incisions that can affect that. So there's a lot of things that go into it that we sort of understand, um, but then there's a lot of things we don't understand. So things like, let's say you're having surgery, your day one pain score can predict whether or not you go on to have chronic pain. So if you have very high pain on day one after surgery, you're more likely to have chronic pain long-term. So is it because your pain wasn't treated or maybe you had more pain because there was something different about your surgery or maybe the pain medicines were less effective or maybe you didn't get pain. There's so many things that go into that. So knowing the actual causation is really tricky. And again, that's why we try to use animal models because you can get at the cause, like you're saying root cause. In humans, it's really hard to get at a root cause. So we sort of speak in generalities and doing big studies, looking at all comers and then who goes on to develop pain and who doesn't. 
Um, but it's really hard to get a root cause in, in, in people at this point. Well, there's so many variations, so many, I mean, you have so many experiences in a day or a lifetime that make you who you are versus like in a lab, right? A little bit we can control everything. Yeah. yeah. Fascinating. And I guess to kind of wrap this up, what would you, what would you recommend for, for your patients who have chronic pain and you're easing them back into, you know, leaning into taking the challenge of exercise? You mentioned, you know, start with a walk to the mailbox and then, you know, build from there. Um, and then what, what is, what would you say they should be paying attention to the most? How they feel in that moment or, you know, how they feel the next day? I would say maybe both, but also keeping in mind this idea of there are going to be good days and bad days, but overall you should feel like you're making forward progress. So, you know, adding on incremental activity, um, focusing really on strengthening, especially back in, you know, I, to me, like core is absolutely the most important, especially because so many patients come in with back, with back pain. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that that can be avoided with really strong core strengthening. So I think paying attention to function, paying attention to core strengthening and, um, not trying to do too much all at once, but sort of giving yourself the chance to try a little bit and then recover, try a little bit and recover, but not just stopping the moment you have pain. Because for a lot of my patients, they kind of, you know, they say they live 24 seven in pain. So it's really hard. And so I say, well, you might have to push yourself to a seven out of 10 to, you know, use the pain scale for what it's worth. You know, you might have to push yourself to a seven out of 10 by walking to the mailbox and then rest, but then you just have to keep doing it. And, you know, that's kind of what we need to do to get you more functional because a lot of the times, you know, what they're currently doing, which is maybe not doing much exercise, isn't really getting them better. And so I always try to say, well, we're going to try something different, which is it might, it might be harder, but I think that at least it gives you a chance at, at being more functional, which I think most people really want, you know, nobody really wants to be laying in bed in pain all day. Yeah. Um, so having the chance to sort of add more activity slowly without the expectation that it has to be done right now today. Yeah. Practicing some self-love and yeah. some patience, I would imagine is a huge part of that. What are the top like three to five types of pain that come, you mentioned low back pain. Uh, that that, yeah, that, that exist or that I see? That you see. So, I mean, I have a very specific practice and that I see complex regional pain syndrome, chronic post-surgical pain, and peripheral nerve injury. Um, those are probably my top three. Um, but in general, I'd say fibromyalgia or widespread body pain is also very big. Um, and then low back pain, certainly, um, we see a lot of. Um, and then different you know, clinicians sort of focus on different things. Um, but because my research interests sort of lie within the realm of CRPS and complex nerve injury, that's sort of where I feel like I have the most value for my patients, although I can also treat migraine um, or other types of pain. Um, but the, I spend so much time thinking about complex nerve injury 
um, that I think it's you know helpful for my patients when I when I speak about it and can give opinions on medicines or approaches for those types of pain. And do you do consultations with people? If if somebody listening to this podcast right now was thinking to themselves, I or someone I know has chronic pain, um, could they reach out to you? Yeah, so we do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I see new patients every week. And so they just need to get referral or self-referral to the Stanford Pain Medicine Clinic. Um, and yeah, we, I'm happy to see people who, like I said, I, that's what I see most of. But, um, you know, I can always direct them towards, we also have specialists in pelvic pain. Um, we also have specialists, like I said, low back, migraine, um, GI or like abdominal, chronic abdominal pain or sort of gastrointestinal um, disorders. And uh, atypical facial pain. I'm trying to think of what are other stuff. So we have many, many subspecialists, even within pain. Sadly, it's such a broad field, (laughs) the field of pain. Well, thank you so much. It was was so interesting. A lot of it is above my head, but I, you know, (laughs) thankfully I haven't personally had experience with this and I hope to never have to be in your office (laughs) as much as you've been a total delight to chat with Vivienne. I usually tell people that I'm happy when they want to fire me. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm like, I'm happy to keep seeing you, but I'm also happy if you want to fire me because, right. you know, you're better. And that's always a pleasure. Well, I'm grateful that there are people doing this kind of work so that people can hopefully experience some relief. Thanks right. so much. You're Thank welcome. you. Thank you. Thank you for joining another episode of Alkaline Unplugged. As a reminder, please leave us a review on Apple iTunes or wherever you're listening. Comments, feedback, and requests or suggestions for future guests can be emailed to info at alkalinestudios.com. We look forward to hearing from you.